get the show. It's running Simon uh, Simoncast. Uh, I'm Jerry Simmons, your host, along with me this morning. I hope he's on the line by now. Is Mr. Test Don't Guess Brian Fuller? Brian, are you there? Good morning. I'm here. Good morning. Welcome. Good to be back. Welcome to the show, buddy. Welcome back. Um, one thing we want to get going before we get going is this portion of the show is brought to you by Spectrum Ina Road Auto Collision, 4425 West Ina Road, behind Jiffy Lube and Car Wash, 744-4454. All right, Brian, what in the world is going on since you've been having a few months off here, buddy? What's going on with the auto repair industry as you see it? Well, boy, oh, boy, I tell you, we've been busy. I've been in the trenches myself. I've seen more air conditioning last month, more air conditioning repairs last month than I've seen all of last year. Unbelievable. And, uh, wow. you know, on top of that, I've seen an excessive lot of uh, electrical repairs that have been needed lately. Um, vehicles coming in where they've got parasitic draws, which is power being taken away from their batteries when the key is off. Uh, I've seen a boatload of that going on. And, uh, you know, body control modules, we've had a run on those lately, especially in the GM models, which, uh, you know, the body control modules are leaving something on because and taking power away from the battery. Uh, the thing is, is on these computer with wheels that we drive, uh, everything runs through the body control module. You've got, uh, you know, it communicates with the HVAC module, the ABS module, the engine control module, the seat modules, the window modules, everything in the car. Well, let's go to the phones. All right. Let's go to the phones. Cool. We got a Keith we got? on line one. I'm sorry, who? Keith. Good morning, Keith. How Keith. you doing? Okay. Morning, Good Keith. morning, guys. How are you? How are you all? Doing Excellent. Great. How are you? Well, I'm, I'm doing fine. Um, I have a 2008 uh, Toyota Tundra 5.7 cab um, with the tow package, and I have developed that Toyota clunk that just started. I don't know if you all know what that means, but uh, when I come to a stop, and the rear end seems like it's lining back up the pinion gears or whatever. And when I go to take off, I get that clunk sound. And um, in researching it, I've been told it might be the U-joints, might be the rear end. And I read it where a 24-year-old, a 24-year Toyota technician said that um, on the uh, 5.7 four-wheel drive Toyotas, they made the rear end loose, so when towing a trailer or something, that the gears will heat up and then mesh together better than what they are when it's cold. I don't know if that's true. Any experience with that Toyota clunk? Uh, Brian? I have you've been skating for about eight job. months. Have you run across this yet? I have not run across that on a Toyota. I've run across it a lot on Fords where they have the split drive shafts and the splines get dry and 
you have to remove the drive right. shaft and lubricate the splines. But I don't believe that that's got a split drive shaft on it. So uh, I would be, you know, taking a good look at the U-joints on this thing. Um, you know, get the rear of the vehicle up in the air, and, uh, you know, you can manually rotate the drive shaft back and forth and see if you got some play in the in the U-joints. Um, okay. You could also, okay. you know, take a look at the backlash on the ring and pinion when you got the rear axle off the ground. Um, How many miles, Keith, do you have on this vehicle? Um, 152,000. And in, in the Toyota forms, a lot of people said they've developed it around 35,000. I've developed them around right around 150,000, and it's only been right, like so a matter of time. About... Yeah. All right. You're at a, Describe it. Describe your driving, and what happens when you stop, and what happens when you start off, and take it from there. Does it do it like driving down the freeway? Yada yada yada. Go ahead. Fill us in on the missing information we need. Okay. If How many miles? I'm, you got 158. 153. Okay, go ahead. Uh, when I come into a stop, and just when the vehicle comes to a complete stop, and it's just, but it's sitting there idling, all of a sudden you'll hear it just clunk. And it sounds like it's, it's like setting. in the rear end. It's, that's what it's, it's, it's when I'm at a stop. It's not when I'm accelerating from a stop. It's coming to a stop, and then all of a sudden it just makes that clunk sound. Okay. Uh, the drive shaft you have in it, it's a four-wheel drive. Do you have a, a uh, slip and spline on the end of the drive shaft like Brian was referring to? You know, I'm not, I, would not, I don't know that for sure. I, I, I don't know either on that particular Toyota. I know that uh, a slip and spline, normally a slip and spline will, will start causing a problem when you come up and you stop or you take off, when you take off. But a vehicle sitting still that has a clunk, I mean, is it instantly when you stop it clunks? No, it's not instantly. It's 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 like um, just a few seconds. And it doesn't happen all the time, though. That's what is really a kicker. It, you could do it 15 times and you wouldn't hear it. And then all of a sudden it does that. Okay, it's really sure Ryan probably said. Welcome to my world. I mean, you know, chasing the, the noise that uh, doesn't duplicate itself when you go to the repair shop. You know, I'd have to get this in and take a good look at it, you know, and see if it does have a split drive shaft. Um, if it's got a split drive shaft, it could be that, like I said, the splines are dry. Um, if it's got a split drive shaft, it's going to have a carrier bearing. Um, right. You know, these are all things that we need to take a look at. Um, so we need some more facts on this, you know, and get our eyes on it before we could properly diagnose it. Uh, exactly. Exactly. Uh, you know, as far as a preload on the differential, if you have a, does it have a, like a posi track in the back or limited slip? Well, it does have a, I'm, I'm underneath the vehicle right now. It does have a carrier bearing. All right. All right. So it's got a split it drive a shaft. Carrier bearing, so you got a two-piece shaft. Okay. Yep. All right. I would go with that 
first because that's going to be an easy thing to do. You can drop the rear of the drive shaft down and uh, and pull it out. And you should have a slip and spline coming off the uh, your spline coming off the front shaft going to the rear shaft, and that's where most of the time the problem is on a clunk okay. like that. Also, look at the rubber inside the uh, center support bearing and make sure it's in good shape. I don't think that's going to cause your problem because most of the stuff, like Brian says, it's a dry spline. And what it does, it likes to bind up as you reverse the torque on the differential. When you come into a stop, you're on the brakes, the differential's at a different position. Normally, it will do it when you pull away also because it goes back to the other uh, it tilts up and it pulls the drive shaft to the rear. And when you come in, it, you go the, when you hit the brakes, the differential tilts down and then it push, pushes against the spline. And if it's a dry spline, it'll, it'll, it'll clunk too. So it should be doing it when you pull away and when you come in. Um, okay. and it can clunk just as you stop. Okay. But it's not going to clunk after it sits there five minutes and then unless it's a preload and it's really frozen up. And then the, the amount of force from the differential and the new position of the drive shaft or propeller shaft, whichever you want to call it, will cause it to clunk as it keeps continual pressure on it until it actually breaks loose and then it'll clunk. And that's a rarity. I would pull that back shaft off while you're under there. Get you a wrench and uh, probably a little star wrench. <clears throat> Pull that uh, drive shaft off, pull it back, and take a look at it. Remember, if it don't have a blind spline on, a blind spline means two two splines are welded together, and then it'll go back in one way only. If it don't have that, make sure you put the drive shaft back in the exact same way that you pull it out. You can use any kind of marker you want to do, or scrape it, or whatever that marks it so that you go back exactly the way it come out. If not, you're going to have a balance problem. Correct, correct. Well, I may even be bringing it in to you, Jerry. <laughs> well, that we can do it. Yeah, if you have a drive shaft issue, we can fix drive shafts. That's what we do. Uh, yeah. And also, uh, check your mounts, your motor mounts. Uh, check your transmission mount while you're under there. Transfer case. Check check your mounting on it. All each one, two, three should have three. Check the transmission mount or transit on the back of the transmission or the transfer case. And then you check both engine mounts up front and make sure the rubber's not busted out because Arizona, uh, the UVs here are pretty rough on com uh, rubber components. So take a look at it and make sure you don't have the loose bolts or nuts on the bolts that hold the mounts in place and make sure that the rubbers are good on that. And, but I would, I, I'm going to agree with Brian. I think we'll go first with the drive shaft. Pull that rear drive shaft off, slide it out, and see if you got grease on the splines. If you don't, just put grease on the splines and slide that son of a gun. I'd put it a little bit of grease inside on the yoke and on the uh, female yoke. And then on the male yoke, just go ahead and put a little grease on that and push it back together. You w should have a seal on the end of that. Uh, so when you pull it out, you put it back on. If the seal is the one that I'm familiar with, it'll have little ridges on it that keeps it clean and keeps it from getting debris in it. But those do go bad, and you will get uh, dried out in there with dirt and grime and all that stuff. So pull it out, wipe it down good, clean it off, 
and then put some good lube back on it. If that yoke, uh, that spline, I don't think it has the glide coat on it. Glide coat, <laughs> tongue tied. Glide coat is blue. It's like Ford, man, uh, Ford come on. In fact, it's a Ford blue. And when you see that, if that stuff is ripped up, it's time to bring it in the shop and it's time to get a new spline put on it. You do not have to buy a new shaft. We can replace the splines on it. All right, and if it still keeps clunking, bring it down there and talk to the guys in the drive shaft division, and they'll go out and take a ride with you, or they'll go out and listen to it if you can make it duplicate, okay? Okay, Jerry. Thank you very much. All right, buddy. Good luck with that. Uh-huh. All right, Thank 719-419-1490. 719-1490. We do have Mr. Test first old guest on the line. Uh, he is front and center in the inside the garage repairs and has been for the last seven, eight months because of the volume that he actually has to, uh, uh, wear two hats. He is a good technician. And so any questions you have on the air conditioning or the electrical repairs or body control modules, um, mild indicator lights, which is the dash lights that come on, uh, 719-1490. All right, Brian, back to you, buddy. You got anything you want to add to tell Keith about? Well, like I said, you know, uh, we need to get get his vehicle in and get our ears on it, you know, and uh, see exactly what's going on. Uh, it's pretty tough to diagnose clunks over the phone or over the radio, for that matter. But uh, oh, yeah. back to the uh, electrical repairs. Um, yes. You know, this 2015... GMC Yukon that we had come in, this thing had 82 codes in it. We had codes in the analog brake system, the amplifier, the body control module was the main culprit. What else did we have in the camera system, chassis control module, human machine interface, HVAC module, HVAC controls, instrument panel, cluster, keyless entry, uh, media displayer, parking assist module, passenger presence system, radio controls, seat driver module, side object detection module, steering column lock module, telecommunications interface module, tire pressure sensor module, engine transmission and airbags, liftgate module, power steering control module, steering angle sensor, transfer case. I'm telling you, this thing was just full of problems. And in the end, the battery was going dead in a very short period of time. You know, it's back to, you know, we talk about batteries. Did the battery go dead because the battery went dead, or did it have some help? That's why I say when your battery goes dead, it isn't just go buy a new battery and throw it in the vehicle. It's test first, don't guess. I can't say that enough. You need to do a charging and starting system test, which includes testing the battery, the alternator, the starter, but the biggest culprit is is a parasitic draw. A parasitic draw, in simple terms, is something taking power away from the battery when everything should be off. This test must be run when you have a battery go dead. Otherwise, you could put a battery in, and hell, 
later in the day, it might be dead again. In this case, on the 2015 GMC Yukon, he had a 2-amp draw on top of having 82 codes in all these computers. Basically, in the end, we found out that the draw was coming from the body control module. It was leaving things turned on when they should be off. So I want you to, hey, hang on. I want you, before we get any further, a lot of people think when you turn the key off, everything is dead immediately. I want you to explain how that actually works on these computer cars. Are, do you understand what I'm asking? I exactly understand what you're a- asking. The thing okay. is, is with all these Explain vehicles, you're, you're driving a computer with wheels. I mean, how many computer modules did I just reference to on this 2015 GMC Yukon? A lot. Okay, so you turn the vehicle off. It takes time for all these modules, computers, to turn off. Some turn off instantly, others take time. Some vehicles, it takes up to 20 minutes for everything to turn off in the vehicle. When I say turn off, mean stop using power from the battery. And in this case, this vehicle, the body control module was leaving things turned on, thus taking away the battery. And on top of that, he had other problems with this vehicle. The radio would work, and then it wouldn't work, and sometimes the windows would go up, and sometimes they wouldn't. All kinds of strange things were lurking in the shadows on this vehicle, and it was all related back to the body control module. So that being said, you know, let's go get a new part and put it on. Let's go right to the dealer and get a brand-new part. Brand-new parts are supposed to work, right? Welcome to 2021. I find this a lot in the auto repair industry, and this can be said in other lines, you know, as far as, uh, you know, household things. You buy it, you take it home, it doesn't work. Welcome to 2021. So anyway, I go get a body control module for this thing, put it in the vehicle, and I can't communicate with it. Well, it isn't that that thing's going to, I'm going to ask it a question and it's going to talk back to me. It's not that kind of communication, okay? <laughs> the communication I'm talking about is is I have my laptop, I have it plugged into the vehicle, and I can access all these modules that I just referenced. I can use the laptop and I can go to each and every one of those modules. The old module, keep this in mind, that was leaving things turned on, I could communicate with with the laptop. The new module, oddly, I could not. So I call back the parts person. This really floored me. He was a different parts person because I normally deal with the same person all the time because I can trust that when I deal with him, things are going to happen and they're going to happen correctly. But this other guy, he says, well, you must have done something wrong. Well, I says, look, man, (laughs) I can't program this thing, and this isn't my first walk around the block. (laughs) I, I got into this programming nonsense when it all started. 
and had uh, manufacturer-specific computer for every single U.S.-made model, make. Mm-hmm. So it isn't like I haven't done this before. If you can't communicate to the module, you cannot program it. Why does it need to be programmed? Because it's senseless when you plug it in, basically. It doesn't know what it's doing. You have to marry it to the other modules, meaning it has to be coded. Mm-hmm. This is a process that uh, has been around ever since you know the, the vehicles had to be programmed when they had multi- multiple mo- modules put in them. And uh, so anyway, I said, I can't communicate with this thing. I need another one. So after him and Han for a while, he finally got me another module. I got the module put in. All's good. Programming went well on this one. I'm going to refer back to a different one that I did on a Cobalt last week, later. But uh, I got the thing, mo- the module programmed and everything, but yet it won't start. And so now we have to go through the smart key programming. Oh, boy, doesn't that sound fun? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So smart key programming is what you have when you have a push-button start, mm-hmm. where you just lay the remote on the center console and push the button after you put your brake or your foot on the brake pedal, and the thing starts, right? Okay, so since the body control module is new, you have to marry the key fobs to the module, which is a process. And I'm going to go through this here in just a minute. So what you do is, is you open the driver's door, get the key fob, take the key, the emergency key out of the key, smart key fob, put it in the outside of the door, turn it to the left five times to activate remote learn process. Then you go and you wait 10 minutes until the instrument cluster displays press engine start button to learn. You do that, close the door, wait another 10 minutes. Repeat this process two times. Press the engine start button again, and then you're supposed to place the new smart key fob in the transmitter pocket of the GMC Yukon Center Council. Then you press the start stop button again and wait. Wait until the instrument cluster displays that the key fob is programmed and it's ready to program a second key fob, which you need to program too with this vehicle. Anyway, yesterday after doing this three times, which took up about an hour and a half, two hours of my time, <laughs> I'm going, this thing is really being stubborn because it was aborting the process at the last stage of programming. So welcome to my world, and thank you, technology, because yesterday an hour and a half of my life was wasted because of technology. Now, did I do anything wrong? No. I followed these steps, step by step by step by step, had a timer for the 10-minute window that you had to wait, and it still didn't program. 
So I've got another issue with this thing lurking somewhere in the shadows that I get to go find. So wouldn't it be nice to go back to the day of grab your key, put it in the ignition, and turn it to the right to the start position and go? <laughs> Love to have that life back, huh? Well, welcome to my world. It would be nice, but that's not going to happen. You know it, and I know it. So now, and I think that's excellent the way you describe this, because most people, when they take it into a shop and they have a little problem with it, they don't understand the amount of technical data that you have to mine, bring it in, so that you can even see what's going on with this thing. And with the OB Well, of course. I mean, I've got hours and hours and hours into this thing. You know, well, you time that I can't control. really necessarily even bill for. But right. it's technology. It's what we wanted, right? We wanted all these computers. Right. We wanted we wanted cruise control. We wanted auto roll down windows. We wanted side vision, rear vision, rear cameras, backup cameras. We wanted all this, correct? We wanted navigation systems. We wanted all this high tech stuff and we got it. Well, guess what? This stuff breaks, and it's got to be fixed, and it takes a lot of time. And you've got to have patience with your auto technician on this deal because you run into little quirks like this. You can go YouTube this little key fob reprogram thing, and, oh, it looks so easy. The guy makes it look just so easy. It's not easy. (laughs) Uh, Welcome to my world. Not at you. (laughs) What? You, YouTube is interesting. You can find a lot of simple stuff on YouTube, but when you get into the heavy electronics on it, uh, unless you are a technician and have been there and and done that, you know, that information, you won't even know what you're looking at. You'll think, oh, well, and people are under the impression that you, because you have an OBD2 since 1996, that you just plug that little, little, Analyzer in to that port, and it'll tell you what it is, and it'll give you a code. You'll read the code. O2 sensors come to mind really quick and say, oh, I've got to have an O2 sensor. And then they go buy an O2 sensor. They put it in, and within, what, 100 yards? Sometimes it goes 100 miles, and that O2 sensor is back on again because that wasn't the problem. And there was a Yeah, I get that all the time. You know, people call me, well, can't you just plug into that thing? And it'll tell you what to do and fix it. Exactly. Exactly. What I call that is being code dependent. Bad deal. Like you said, with an oxygen sensor, there is 21 reasons an oxygen sensor's code sets. Only one of the 21 reasons means go buy a new oxygen sensor. So again, I get back to test first, don't guess. What's really going on? That's right. You have to go through the procedures and test this thing out and find out what's really going on. More times than not, with an oxygen sensor code, you've got uh, unmetered air going into the engine. Unmetered air is a vacuum leak, basically. Mm-hmm. On your Ford products, it's usually a vacuum leak at the positive crankcase ventilation tube. It's a rubber tube on the back of the intake, and it gets a hole in it. 
after a while because, well, what does it do? Positive crankcase ventilation, it sucks a little bit of oil vapor into the motor. Goes through the PCV valve, goes through the rubber hose. What happens to rubber when you put a little bit of oil on it? After time, it deteriorates and it disintegrates and you have a hole in it. Voila, there you go. There's your vacuum leak or unmetered air, what I call it, going into the engine. Other things are, you know, you can have, we've got so much plastic on these vehicles, and why do we have that? Well, the EPA said, we need more miles per gallon, okay? So how are they going to do this? They're going to have to lighten these vehicles up, correct? Voila, here comes the plastic. So if we take that cast iron intake manifold off the top of this motor and throw a plastic one on top of it, we've just lightened up this vehicle's weight. Thus, the rolling resistance of this mass going down the road will be less, correct? If it isn't as heavy, it will roll down the road easier, correct? There you go. Theoretically. Theoretically, you've got more miles per gallon. That's what they want. So you've got plastic intake manifolds, you've plastic thermostat housings. That that just floors me. We'll get into that later. But, uh, you know, you've got this plastic on top of aluminum, and they expand and contract at two different rates. You've got a rubber gasket in between these two things. You've got all this heat in the engine compartment. Well, heat kills. That rubber gasket deteriorates, and now you've got a vacuum leak at the intake manifold. Again, unmetered air going into the engine, which is not an oxygen sensor. Another thing that can throw an oxygen sensor code is a dirty mass airflow sensor. That's that air filter, or caused by that air filter that everybody forgets about and never changes. That air filter can get so dirty that the dirt will go through it and get on the mass airflow sensor and skew the readings of that sensor. When it does that, It'll think it's lean. It'll throw a coat. Fuel system's lean. Bank one, bank two, if it's a V8. That's the P0171, P0174 codes. That doesn't mean go buy an oxygen sensor. So, you know, in that case, you know, it doesn't mean go buy a new mass airflow sensor either. First thing to do is clean it and then retest. Like I always say, test first, don't guess. Test these things out. Too many parts are put on these vehicles in means of trying to fix them. And I see this all the time. You know, I have a customer come in, I've replaced this, I've replaced that. I replaced all these sensors and it's still broken. And I get into it and we start doing some tests on this thing. And guess what? It was a connection, or it was a wire, or it was a pack rat chew to wire or a loose connection, where somehow water got injected into the connector. Thus, we have a voltage problem. You know, a lot of uh, a lot of these sensors, they've only got a 5-volt reference signal out. You have a 12-volt system, correct? But the system voltage to the sensor generally is around 5 volts. Reference voltage back can be anything from less than a volt to up to five, and it changes, and they have to be consistent. 
So that's why I say you have to get in and test this thing out. You know, a lot of times it's a connection problem, a wire problem, a broken wire problem, a loose connection problem. See it all the time. So like I say, test first, don't guess. And keep in mind, you can call us at 719-1490. That's 719-1490. This is Brian from Automotive Specialist. Mr. Tespers, don't guess. Glad to be back. Yeah, I'm glad you're back, buddy. There's a lot of stuff, uh, but the wire connections, the computers are actually pretty strong. I remember when the computers first come out in the automobile. If you can, And believe it or not, that's not that long ago. <laughs> but... I remember that they used to pull out, oh, it's a computer, and they pull it out and send it to a parts house. Well, a parts house will send you another computer, or you can buy another computer, whatever. And you put another computer in there, and it didn't cure the problem. And they found out that better, almost 50% of the computers, when they first come out, that were returned back to the manufacturers. They pull them apart, and they test them and see what's wrong with them. Nothing was wrong with them. It was something else, like grounds and loose wires, like Brian's referring to right now. The, that's the reason we call it a ground around. And you, if you've been listening to me, you've been hearing me scream about ground around forever. But that's real. That's real. That is so critical with a computer system and with all the electronics. I mean, if you take your little stereo at home and you lose a ground wire on it or you lose, uh, you've got your speakers hooked up to it, and one side of that comes off, and all of a sudden you don't have any sound. I mean, it's not the speaker itself. It's the wiring going to it. And so if if you don't test first, don't guess, you're going to be chasing ghosts for a long time. And I, too, over at Simmons, have seen the people come in with a whole right-side passenger seat packed up to the level of the the side glass with boxes of new parts that he's put on there. And it turned out to be a power fuse going off the battery down to the uh, rest of the system. And, and I told the gentleman that, you need to check that. And his comment was, well, I've got a, um, uh, a relative that's a technician, and he said that uh, it doesn't have one. He finally brought it in on a hook, brought it in, dropped it off. It took me less than five minutes to show him what I was talking about, and that that big main fuse was blown. I said, if you will just get a cable, it's got that fuse built in on it, and change it out, splice it out, whatever you want to do to fix that fuse, this thing will go back to life. And I don't even remember, something like $1,000 in parts he had that he had put on that thing trying to make it go. If it test first, don't guess, and if you knew what to look for, and I will be the first to admit, it's not easy. It's not easy. If you've got a gazillion parts and uh, analyzers and stuff like Simmons has, like Fuller has over at Automotive Specialist, like Mike Parker has at Parker Automotive, you can at least have a starting point. Don't clear the codes. Do not clear the codes because that's the history. That's the information we're going to need. And it cuts the diagnostic time down without us sitting there checking every stinking thing it's got in it in order to come up with a What's happened? 82 codes in that thing, and I'll bet you the 82 codes, just like Brian said, it's caused one one thing has then triggered it up front, and it sounds like a power supply or a grounding <laughs> issue all the way through that thing. Yeah, the body Somewhere there's module, a problem. The body control module took care of those codes. 
Right now, the only problem I have with it is the programming of the smart key fobs that aren't so smart. I'm calling them pretty stupid right now. But, uh, <laughs> you know, I'll get, I'll get past that, you know. But what uh, what's that? I say you will find it. I will fix it. That's what I do. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. But, you know, this is where we're at with the auto repair industry. I mean, I never would have thought thought it, you know, back in the 70s and 80s. I'm, you know. It, All right. Well, we just unbelievable. move a little bit from high tech. Let's move a little bit from high tech. I want to hear more about the AC problems that you're seeing. And be pretty specific on those because people out there are driving. And when the air conditioning goes out with the weather the way it's been, it is miserable. So what what are some of the – and if you know of anything that can give you a little heads up on the uh, air conditioning getting ready to go out uh, while you're driving and you noticed uh, anything that you can throw out here so it can we can educate the consumer on what to be looking for as you drive down a road. I will tell well, you right up front, if you make excuses for your vehicle, if you start making excuses for the way that thing is acting – you get a hold of a, a professional, take it to your favorite garage, and get somebody to take another look at that because you really aren't losing your mind. That thing is acting up because you drive it every day and you know it's acting up. Don't make excuses like, oh, the wind come up on this little hill that all of a sudden I'm down in second gear from a eight-speed. Uh, yeah, the wind's blowing. That wind's got to be blowing about 125 mile an hour to do that. And if it's doing that, you're going to know it's a wind problem before. <laughs> before. Don't make excuses. You get a problem, you think it's a problem, get it in and get it checked out because you're not losing your mind. Okay, Brian. Yeah, there's a, lot of, there's a lot of truth to that. You know, air conditioning, um, you know, it's either working or you're not very happy with it. The, thing, the number one killer for air conditioning the thing that makes it fail is a leak. Okay, if you're not happy with the amount of temperature coming or the cold temperature coming out of your dash, a few things are going on. You could have a plug cabin air filter. That's one. That's the easiest one. Seven one nine fourteen ninety. Any questions? Seven one nine fourteen ninety. Go ahead, Brian. Sorry. The second thing is, is you could be low on freon. Now. What will kill an AC system? Lack of lubrication. And how and why does this happen? When the system goes low, the Freon does two things before it goes low. It keeps you cool, and it carries the lubrication along with it to lubricate the air conditioning compressor. The number one failure of an air conditioning compressor is lack of lubrication after the system went low. And this applies to cars, homes, refrigerators, freezers, everything. Mm-hmm. The compressors need to be lubricated, otherwise they will fail. It's just like running your engine with no oil in it. What would happen? It'll stop rotating, I can guarantee you that. It'll destroy itself. So, and there's a lot of places that these systems can leak. Um, Lately, we've seen a lot of vehicles that come in, and and they're just leaking out of the service valves. The service valve is where we hook up the hoses, and the valve is kind of like a tire valve. 
where you hook the little air pressure thing on to check the pressure or add air. You depress the little thing inside of the little valve stem. Same thing on the AC system, only it's larger. We see a lot of those leak. And lately, when I do an air conditioning service, if I'm recovering, evacuating, and recharging a system, now it's shop policy. I replace those service valves automatically just to avoid the problem. Other places they can leak is at the hose connections where the rubber hose is, you know, crimped onto the steel part of the line. Uh, O-rings leak at the evaporators, condensers, compressors. Again, we have that heat factor under the hood, and those rubber O-rings, they'll get smaller, and they won't seal, and they'll start to leak, and there goes your Freon. Now you're not happy, you're not cold, and you're destroying your AC system because the AC compressor is not getting lubricated. Another thing that will happen is, is you'll hear under the hood a clicking, a click on, click off, click on, click off. That's your AC compressor cycling on and off. And why is it doing that? Because there's a low-pressure cycling switch. And to save the system, or try to anyway, if the pressure gets too low, it'll turn the compressor off. It's designed to do that when the pressure goes too low. That's an indication the system's low, and it needs to be in and get it serviced. And when you service it, it's not grabbing that one can. Oh, boy. Get into this now. That little can of Freon that you go buy from your local store with a little gauge on it and a little hose, like that guy in the commercial with his little mittens sitting in his car, saying how great this little can of Freon is. Well, that little can of Freon, yeah, you can shoot some in it, but most of these cars hold about a pound of Freon. So you're holding 12, 16 ounces in your hand, okay? If, I mean, danger. If you overcharge an air conditioning system, it'll damage it too because the pressures will go too high on the high side. Now, remember, keep in mind that little can that you have in your hand, that's hooked up to the suction side, the low side pressure. You don't know what the high side pressure is. That's why I've got an AC machine. We didn't want to go out and buy an air conditioning machine for 5000 bucks, but we had to because we had to have the information. I need to know the low side pressure. I need to know the high side pressure. In that little can, you don't know the high side pressure, and you don't have a scale on that can. You've got 12, 16 ounces in your hand. Your little Honda holds 12 ounces of Freon. It's got six ounces in it. Let's say it's half full. It's got six ounces in it. You've got 12 ounces in your hand. Are you saying that you're good enough that you can take that can and depress that button and only put in an additional six ounces? I don't think so. I'm pretty sure that you might overcharge it or you could undercharge it. Either one of them are bad. So those little cans of Freon with the little hose and the little gauge, don't use them. Do yourself a favor. Go to a professional. Have the proper machine hooked up to this thing because the only way that you can properly service your air conditioning system is to recover what Freon was in it, record what you pulled out, evacuate the system, and then program in the amount of Freon in ounces, because a lot of these cars are, you know, this one holds 16, 18 ounces. Well, 16 ounces is a pound. 
But, you know, the additional few ounces, you need to get that in there, too. That's why these machines have uh, scales on them, and we can program in how much to put in, and it'll put in exactly that amount. And then all's good. So, as I said... Check it the leaks, yeah. You know, uh, the, you normal re- the normal recycling on these vehicles when you're driving down the road, I know it is on my little Honda. Uh, the key when I had to send my Honda in to have it fixed was it was starting to recycle at about nine seconds. Anything under 13 seconds, uh, you start looking and you find out where the problem is. Because if you sit there and it's clicking on and it runs for about nine seconds, it clicks off, clicks on, uh, that's the uh, valve that's trying to protect the system. And you think, oh, well, you know, no, go in and get it checked out. Because I found that over the years by having numerous vehicles that have uh, air conditioning in it, if you live in Tucson and you don't have air conditioning, oh, my goodness. And then you 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 take it in and you get it properly fixed because if you do that, to repair an AC system is a heck of a lot cheaper because I know Brian has had to replace complete air conditioning systems. We at Simmons have replaced complete AC systems, and so has Mike Parker at Parker Automotive. Has com- he has done complete AC systems when it was preventable. The only one it wasn't really that preventable when Ford Motor Company had this air conditioner that the the uh, compressor used to blow up, and it'd fill up a system with black death. And when that happens, you replace the entire system, and that gets expensive. Well, uh, a lot of today's cars, the uh, when the system fails, it sends shrapnel throughout. Metal goes throughout the system. Absolutely. In the old days, you could flush the lines and flush the condenser because the condenser was a tube it, type where the tube was bigger than a pencil and you could flush the debris out of the condensers today with the serpentine style condensers those holes that are going through the condenser are about the size of a pencil lead or smaller you can't flush those out it's impossible so if you have catastrophic failure with an ac system today you're replacing the condenser you're replacing the compressor you're flushing the AC lines, the orifice tube and or expansion valve are are replaced. Basically, you're replacing the whole system except for the AC lines in the evaporator that's inside of the dash. I think, Brian, if my air conditioning actually went out again, what I would probably do is I'd go into one of these Class A stores or even Merle's, I'm sure they sell it too. It's called Stop Leak. No. Okay, it's back to you now. <laughs> do not put stop leak in your AC system. Do not do it. I've had people come in when they went to the big box store and bought their little can of Freon, had stop leak in it, sealer, whatever you want to call it. Oh, yeah. It into the all... And it basically failed in a short period of time after that. See, we have to check for that, too. You know, if we have a new vehicle come into the shop, customers never been here before, we check for sealer. Because if they have sealer in their AC system, it's going to seal up my AC machine, too, and it'll be no good. 
I've had people, you know, I had. A, I remember the Jeep guy, he put a bunch of sealer in his vehicle. I had this happen, too, on a Ford Escape. But uh, the customers come in and just drop the keys down, and he says, I put sealer in this AC system, and it don't work anymore. Mm. I said, oh, boy. He says, yep, just call me when it's done. I know what it's going to take. You know, basically, on that one Jeep, we had to cut it apart. You couldn't even take the, the fittings apart. Couldn't do it. And it got everything. Sealed it up. Yeah. Yeah, it sealed it up. It locked it up. You know, it got everything replaced on that Jeep. It got a condenser, all the lines, the AC compressor, the evaporator inside the dash. Everything got replaced. Because, yeah, it sealed it up okay. Yep. All right, now let me ask you a question. Uh, of course, you've seen the people that drive around, and it's winter time, and they say, yeah, I, I, I can stand it. I know my air conditioning is dead. But I'll I'll just handle it. I'll just drive it until the summertime, and then I'll just take it in and have it recharged, and it's good. What happens to that AC system when it has no Freon in it, and you ignore it for about eight months or three months or four months? What happens to the inside of that system, Brian? Well, I mean, one, it's not going to turn on, so that's a good thing because it won't destroy itself in that manner. But, uh, mm-hmm. you know, it's just not good to have a system that's not working. And this, that's all there is to it. natural moisture? What about the natural moisture that comes inside the lines? That creates well, the, the condensation, yes, that will be inside and of the system. Happens, yeah, what happens when you then you charge it? What happens to all that little rust particles inside those lines? What does it do to a system? Well, it can plug up an orifice tube. It can make an expansion valve stick and not open. And it'll destroy the system, that moisture. That's why you have to evacuate the system, because mm-hmm. we're getting rid of the moisture. Right. But if you've got little rust particles on the, uh, uh, on the inside of the lines or inside on the components, and you try to evacuate that, you can only pull so much rust off of the little uh, whatever's on the inside of the AC system. There's only so much you can get out. And that... I know the condenser is so thin, you are just hosed if that thing goes out and you have to, then you start, get ready with some serious money, anywhere from 1000 to $2,500, depending on what's got to be replaced. Don't ignore these systems. If you're laying there dead and you know that they went out or you had a compressor that went out, that's the reason you shut it off and you don't use it anymore. Get, you better save some cash before you go in to get it done because it is not going to be inexpensive to repair. Yeah, it's best very, thing very to do is rare catch, that... catch it before it does. Catch it before it does happen. As soon as your recycle time goes below about 13 seconds, get that thing in. You'll hear the click. You could sit there and idle, and it'll be clicking on at seven seconds or clicking on at five seconds. And Get it fixed. It needs to be clicking around. When I took mine in, it was below 13. And when I took it in and got it repaired and brought it back, it was recycling at about 16, 17 seconds, which is respectable. So, you know, that's uh, and because that controls the pressure in the lines and, and that stuff. But if you've got a 134 system uh, and you get too much Freon in it, a 134 system is high head pressure anyway on a 134 system. So if you have already high head pressure and then you overcharge it and you build that high pressure up, 
it can get nasty. It can get very nasty and expensive. And keep in mind, that oil that comes out of the compressor, that oil is very flammable. So you don't want that stuff floating around inside your engine compartment. We've seen a Cadillac that had it burnt. Everything on the hood was burnt because of an AC compressor failure that squirted the oil out on the exhaust manifold, and it it ignited. So that doesn't happen all time. Keep in mind, there's always exceptions to the rule, but when you're in the automotive repair industry, it's our job to tell you what can happen to this. After that, it, you're on your own. I mean, all we can do is inform you, just and you can go from there. So that's that's what we're doing. This is Education AC 101. There uh, you go. What else you want to add to the air conditioning? Because we're getting up close to the top of the hour. I'm running out of time here. So wow, where did this hour four go? Minutes. Huh? Where did the hour go? That was quick. It went quick. You covered a lot of good information, a lot of good information, especially on the batteries. Battery only lasts 24 to 30 months in Tucson on a used vehicle. A new one, you can get up to 36 months. There's an always exception to the rule that says, oh, I can get 48 months out of my new battery on this brand-new car. Yeah, you probably can. You don't drive it much. You don't use all the accessories or all the bills and whistles in there all the time. And uh, you probably have a service on a regular basis. Now, yeah, Brian well, that's over the part years. of that is, is you know you got to keep those battery cables clean. They need to be tight. Yeah. Um, I've seen a lot of vehicles these new cable connections that they've got on these vehicles. They seem, you know, they're tight, but they're actually not tight around the post. I see this a lot, and uh, you know. A lot of these new cars with these battery cables, oh, my gosh, they are expensive. They mm-hmm. go all the way to the power distribution center, and then they go off and take off somewhere else. They could be part of the engine harness itself. So, you know, keep them clean. Contrary to belief, batteries do not or are not supposed to leak. If you've got a leaking battery, get rid of it. Get a new one. Because you can damage that battery cable, that acid will crawl backwards inside of that cable, down in far enough to basically ruin it. And then you've got a voltage drop, which is a problem with your computer with wheels that likes voltage. Right. So, you know, take a good look at that. If you've got a leaking battery, get rid of it, get a new one. Um, if your battery is about 36 months old, you might want to take and have it tested see if it's got low cold cranking amps if it does it's on its way out um and it's time for a new one if, if i want you've got you to a cover battery we've, that's we've got about months. brian we've got about a minute to go before the top of the hour uh do a quick uh explanation on replacement cable ends that we used to use back in the day well, Rick, I, I do have a means of replacing the cable end. I found some new uh, stainless battery cable ends that we are able to use, solder heat shrink back onto the original cable in some cases, if there's enough cable there. But again, you know, a lot of these cars, to cut down on the cost of manufacturing, they've made these cables sh- so short that you can't put a new cable end on them. So a little bit of caution there. You know, again, do your due diligence. Keep the cable ends clean. If you got a leaking battery, replace it. 
and you just won't have problems. That's right. And keep them tight on the battery. And be uh, when you change the uh, cable in, the believe it or not, these little replacement two bolt little where you put it in and you put the screw down this little plate over these two bolts. That is temporary to get you to a shop, and that's where that lasts because. You lose voltage through those things because it's not, Brian hit it on the head a while ago about solder it in. It, there is a procedure to use on these things if you plan on them lasting. So there's no more cheating with that little uh, two bolt thing unless you've got an old 84 Massey Ferguson tractor like I do. I do that, but when I do that, I also check it on a regular basis, and I service it on a regular basis to make sure I don't have any battery leaking on top, anything creeping down the lines, the battery cables. So you get the green out. All right. Well, we're going to come back here in a, a few minutes. We, we're out of time for the first hour, 719-1490. Brian, hang in there, buddy, Roe. We're going to go after some other little issues that uh, I've written down while I was talking to you. So we will be back right after these messages. <laughs> 